1: Plug in and get connected
0: to hot tips, interesting perspectives, and expert travel advice as we cultivate travel insight through intelligent conversation.
1: Welcome to Talk Travel Asia, Episode 72. This one is Northern Myanmar with Nick Ray. Myanmar is one of Southeast Asia's most fascinating and least explored countries. Sealed off from the outside world for almost 50 years, it finally opened up in 2011. And with it, tourism arrivals grew substantially. Things have tailed off a bit over the last couple years, but Myanmar is still an up-and-coming, must-see and experienced destination if you are to truly know Southeast Asia. In fact, it's one of Southeast Asia's most diverse countries and covers a staggering number of regions, from stunning islands and beaches in the Andaman Sea in the far south to the ancient temples at Bagan and the desert-like plains and the 5,881-meter-high Kakaborazi Peak in the countries far north in the Himalayas, Myanmar truly has it all, and then some. Today we'll chat with longtime Lonely Planet writer Nick Ray about his experience authoring parts of the 2017 Lonely Planet Myanmar book. This is Scott Coates in Bangkok, and my partner joins me from far away.
0: Hey Scott, Trevor Ranges here from Kauai, Hawaii.
1: Kauai, Hawaii. Man, that is a a great sounding spot. I love it there. Fantastic.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, you you were here not too long ago, huh?
1: Yeah, I was there in December 2016 for my second time. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, fantastic. Such a great part of the world. If it was in Asia, we could do an episode about
0: it. <laughs> we almost should do a special episode on Hawaii sometime, but uh, it's cool that we're going back to it's Myanmar. It's to
1: Asia.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's close, right? It's yeah, in the it is of cool. nowhere, but uh, yeah, doing a Myanmar one again, I'm pretty stoked on because uh, just a couple of episodes, we did our impressions of Myanmar because you had been there recently, and and if for those of Uh, you
1: impressions of Yangon
0: impressions of Yangon we did uh, episode 70 I believe and so for those of you who haven't listened to it maybe go back and have a a listen Uh, one of the interesting things about that was that Scott had just traveled there recently whereas I hadn't been to Myanmar at all since uh, 2002 I believe we went
1: yeah that's a long gap and our guest today uh, Nick Lives in Cambodia. He's authored the Lonely Planet book there and some others. And he was featured on episode 30, Up and Coming Cambodia with Nick Ray. So kind of have lots of hooks to the past with this
0: one. Yeah, that was a great episode, too. Talking about Cambodia with Nick is always uh, really interesting.
1: So, Trevor, you said you went to, what, Myanmar for the first and only time in, what, 2001? Or what were the dates?
0: I think it was 2002 that we went. Um, And again, we flew into Yangon, and then we arranged Mm -hmm. to have a car and driver um, take us on a one-week loop, where we drove up to Bagan, and then we came back down through Shan State, and we stayed here and there in little towns along the way and what i thought was really cool about myanmar back then especially was just that it seemed like an entirely different world you know it was the the least westernized place i'd ever been to and uh you know now i understand that you know it's changed quite a bit you know it's it's opened up to the western world and it's still very unique as a culture um, but I think the areas that that Nick is going to talk about today, which are north of, of Bagan, which is because Bagan, for those of you who who aren't looking at a map right now, is kind of like central Myanmar. Even though it's up near like Chiang Mai, which is kind of the north of Thailand, um, that's kind of the middle of the country, wouldn't you say?
1: Yeah, absolutely, the middle. And we have a great Google map of uh, this episode to all the places we talk about. Uh, you can see the map in the show notes. And actually. Uh, Bagan is quite a bit far north of uh, Chiang Mai. I mean, um, but yeah, I mean, Bagan is about the central part and Nick focuses on really kind of northeastern and northern uh, parts in the interview. And it's, it's pretty, pretty cool. I mean, my first time there, I think was back in April, hang on, no, we went in 2010, I think 2010, just to Yangon for four or five nights. And it was still kind of closed off then and had talks with people about what it was like living there and some of the secretive government things. And then I proposed to my wife in Bagan in April 2012. Then I was just in Yangon, as you mentioned, here in August 2017 to lead some training and work. And I'm actually going uh, in six days. My wife and I are flying to Mandalay on December 1st, 2017, here just next Friday. Uh, one night there and then we're meeting my parents and we're flying to Inlay Lake, going to spend three nights there and then five nights in Nepali Beach on the country's sort of uh, southwest. So I'm just about to go again and have a good number of impressions now, building.
0: Yeah, that sounds exciting. Uh, we should do an episode on the coast sometime, too, because that's really something that I'd be stoked on on checking out. Um, Now, what's interesting, I think, again, because I haven't been there for so long, when we went, we didn't see any other foreigners the the entire time we were there. And uh, when we were in some of the little villages uh, along the way, uh, I think, like, I was the first white person they'd ever seen, some of these people, you know? Um, So I think what's cool about Myanmar is that there's still areas that nick's probably going to talk about today that are off the beaten path that are still like that you know where you're probably not going to see any other travelers or you'll see very few um and then even more amazing is that myanmar has like these thousands of islands and all these other regions that are still not even open to tourism yet so like there's going to be many years of exploration possible there
1: yeah i mean and the places nick talks about are kind of quote-unquote mainstream enough they're in the book but yeah I think a lot of those places you would not see anyone and that is a country where probably 80 90 percent of the country you could be places where tourists never go it is a massive massive place from the Himalayas very close to Tibet all the way down towards Phuket right the islands you mentioned I mean it is a diverse place with tons of stuff
0: well why don't we bring him in then and uh, hear what he's got to say
1: Our guest today is truly an expert on Southeast Asia. Nick Ray has been living in the region for many years and calls Phnom Penh, Cambodia home. He's a longtime author of the Lonely Planet's Cambodia guidebook, has contributed to several editions of the Myanmar guidebook, including the most recent 2017 edition, and has worked as a fixer, is co-owner of one of Cambodia's premier travel companies, Hanuman Travel, and is one hell of a great guy. Thanks for joining us, Nick.
2: Scott, it's a pleasure. Good to be here.
1: Yeah, well we had you uh, on an episode back in the 30s, I believe, and we always like to start off with uh, letting people know how you ended up living and working in Southeast Asia. So how did Nick Ray end up over in this part of the world?
2: I think for me it was uh, one of the sort of great travel experiences after university, so I came here back in 95 and spent a lot of time traveling around places like Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam when they were sort of pretty remote, pretty off the trail and quite different and then okay. I think sort of got, you know, got under my skin and found them fascinating and kept finding excuses to come back, gradually mm-hmm. began writing, started doing Lonely Planet guides as you said and, and film and television work and gradually found it becoming home. I never really uh, chose to move here, it sort of chose me over time.
0: It
1: pulled you in, yeah?
2: Exactly. Magnetic effect. I got sucked in. In.
1: So what years were you originally traveling around there, and then what year did you settle down and and call Cambodia home?
2: Yeah, I think the first year I traveled here was 95, and then I came back every year thereafter in the 90s. So 1995, 96, I went to Myanmar for the first time. 97, 98, I kept coming back to these countries, and then I think... I started doing the Lonely Planet guides from 1998, so, well, nearly 20 years ago now, and then I think it sort of became home. It's very indistinct and hard to put my finger on it, but let's say around about 2001, I suppose.
1: Okay, so 2001 onwards, and you're married to a a local local Khmer woman, right?
2: Yes, my wife, Kulika, is Cambodian, and she's um, also involved in the travel business, the film business, and so on.
1: Right, okay, so what books have you written for Lonely Planet so far?
2: Um, Well, there's quite a list, I mean obviously you mentioned Cambodia and Myanmar, they're the two relevant ones uh, given where I'm speaking to you from and what I've written about, but also Laos, Vietnam, Indonesia, Thailand in this region, but going further afield I've done um, Zambia, um, Uganda, Rwanda, Democratic Republic of Congo, Burundi, (laughs) lots of hot spots in East Africa, Um, even England and Britain, uh, some quite edgy places on the edge of Europe. (laughs)
1: I had no idea you'd written that many. You must be kind of one of the the top authors for them.
2: I don't know about top, but certainly one of the longer running ones these days. Yeah, and, I, yeah I
1: guess number yeah. of guidebooks and so forth, yeah? That's it.
2: I mean, when I started off, you know, I remember going down to my first author conference in Melbourne back in about 99, and I saw all these travel legends, like people you will know, of course, Joe Cummings, uh, mm-hmm. still based in Thailand, and, you know, I was like the new kid on the block, and now, in more recent years, I've been down to conferences, and I'm like the, the kind of dinosaur, <laughs> and there's all these new kids. <laughs>
1: Sure, sure. You're the uh, old white sage now.
2: Exactly. Time's change, But hey, it's been a lot of fun. And you know, what an amazing place to be over this period. So much has changed, both good and bad, of course, but it's been a very interesting time.
1: Sure. And you're in Phnom Penh right now, is that correct?
2: That's right. Yeah, I'm sitting here right now near Wat Phnom in Phnom Penh.
1: Oh, yeah, that's a great spot. So tell me, Nick, how does a guy living in Cambodia then end up working on the most recent Minmar guidebook?
2: Yeah, good question. I mean, obviously, when you're based in the region, it's pretty handy for dropping in and out of neighboring countries. So, I, for me, I'd had a long interest in Vietnam and done, well, four or five editions of the book. But, of course, eventually, I'd covered every province. So, I'd been from Ha Giang in the north, right down to Kamau in the south. And around uh, about the time that I felt I'd covered everything I could possibly do in Vietnam, Myanmar was, was just beginning to finally open up. So, you know, you'd had... Obviously, Su Chi's release, you would had a uh, sort of democratization process and this opening up. And so I, th- I thought it was a fascinating time and opportunity to sort of go back to a country that I, I'd explored. I'd actually covered it once in, I think it was 2007, for the Southeast Asia book. So I'd traveled extensively then all over the country. And it was like, wow, this is perfect timing to go and see a country in change, which is a bit like when I was first in Cambodia, Laos and Vietnam back in the 90s.
1: Right, right. Okay, so I mean you're obviously extremely seasoned on Southeast Asian nations. Um, I was just in Myanmar for a couple of weeks and I've got my own impressions. But what do you think makes Myanmar different and distinct from other countries in the region?
2: Yeah, I mean that's very interesting. I mean culturally um, it's quite different I find. Because obviously Buddhism is the, is the prime religion mm-hmm. and most people are Buddhist nominally as well, Christians and Muslims and so on. But there's also this whole Gnat worship culture, you know, this sort of animist, um, pre-Buddhist culture that goes on. So it's very mystical and people are very, uh, shy to, I'm generalizing here of course dramatically, but there's a lot of superstition. You know, people use fortune tellers extensively and believe in fate. And so I find that, you know, there's because of that isolation it had for many years and this sort of mystical background, it does seem a very fascinating and unique place. And there there is that sense that it certainly when you get out the main centers and cities that it's quite time warped. And, you know, you really do feel like you're stepping back in time.
1: Okay, so even now you feel like you're stepping back in time there often.
2: I do in certain places. I mean, as I say, obviously not Yangon and and key places, but when you go off the trail, which is so easy to do in Myanmar, that's part of the attraction and the beauty of it, that, you know, you only have to go sort of 100 kilometers down the road and you're completely off the tourist trail. Then it's something pretty different. And, you know, you really find these sort of villages and towns where it's completely, you know, something that's like, you know, you really haven't experienced before.
1: Mm. So what areas did you cover for this latest 2017 edition?
2: Yeah, for the new edition, I covered uh, northern Myanmar, so So, all points far north. So this is now the 13th edition. Shows you how long it's been going, I think.
1: Yeah, it's one of the first guidebooks, is it not, that they did? That's That's right.
2: One of the first single country guides. I think the first one would have been late 70s, and it would have been done by the venerable Tony Wheeler himself, the founder and first owner and he's, he loves Myanmar. It's probably his favorite country. I, well, I shouldn't speak for him, but I know him quite well. It's certainly his favorite country in Southeast Asia, if not the world, and uh, really? he's, he's explored it more than most. But yeah, we're now in the 13th edition, and I covered uh, the far north, so basically um, right up to the Himalayas on the Indian-Chinese border, including places mm-hmm. like Kachin State, and okay. uh, yeah, really really quite wild and quite remote areas.
1: Okay. Well, where would you like to start? I, I mean, I have dreamed of the far throes of, of Myanmar, but I, I mean, pretty much all the places you've covered, I've not been. So where should we start?
2: Well, yeah, I'd say, I mean, the, the, the route that's most accessible to most visitors is that kind of northeast Shan State Loop. So okay. basically, you know, coming out of Mandalay, where you've got an airport, which is convenient yeah. for Bangkok, you know, using AirAsia and sure. uh, other gateways. You, you've got that railway that travels up to the hill station, Pin U Lin, um, right. used to be called Maimio, the old British hill station. Very charming. You know, you're, you've know. suddenly got a 1,000 meters up. It's 10 degrees cooler than, than Mandalay, which is really nice. Right. And then you carry on and that railway crosses that really famous bridge, the Gottek Viaduct.
1: Oh, that looks incredible.
2: It was incredible. the second highest viaduct in the world when it was completed in the late 19th century. And it, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, it is safe and trains go across it every day, but you do slow down and rattle across it and you do sort of feel like, wow, this is really something out of a, you know, it's almost like something out of a, a Wild West movie. Okay. But it's really stunning and the views, it covers this incredible gorge and it's all built on this, you know, massive stilts.
1: Yeah, the picture is incredible and I've seen videos and uh, threatened to go up there. So when you get up... To those you know, the hill stations up there is, is trekking the main attraction, or what would you do up there?
2: Trekking has been, yeah. So, you've got two key places you've got Sepore, which is the mm-hmm. most popular, um, and Sepore is a lovely place, a real sort of a, a backpacker trekking place, very affordable, very friendly, easy to trek, and then you've got just before there um, a place called Chukme, and that was also an up-and-coming trekking place. There was one more, more in the Deep Shan Hills called Nam Shan. The, the sort of caveat with that, to be honest, which is never a positive thing to say, but is of course there are insurgent issues, there are still some conflicts going on in these okay. areas. So right now, as well I can't speak for right now this minute, but let's say right now in recent months, trekking in, in Nam Shan has been off limits for the last couple of years. Sepor, mm-hmm. they, they've stopped overnight treks in Sepor in the last uh, six months or so. Um, because of issues with the Shan State Army, and the same with Chaotmei. So much as it's a beautiful area, you are currently restricted at least to the railway line, the roads, and the towns. So trekking, overnight treks at least, are, are currently off limits, unfortunately.
1: Okay, so if you're headed up there with dreams of overnight treks, you definitely want to check some online forums and, and stuff like that before you head out.
2: Yeah, definitely bring yourself up to date, latest travel warnings and so on. If, and if you really want to do overnight treks, then maybe you need to consider places like you know, Calor and, mm-hmm. and and Inlay Lake to Calor, those sort of areas, because that's all still very safe. But, you know, when Seapore comes back online, which I'm sure will only be a matter of time in negotiation with the insurgent groups, I mean, that that's one of the best value, most beautiful trekking areas in the region.
1: Okay. Now, when I try and say some of the places that you told me you covered for this book, I am going to butcher them. So <laughs> depending on you to set me straight, where and what is in dug da- Yui Lake? How do I say it?
2: Indorji Lake. Yeah, like, kan, like lake. you know, in Yangon, Kandorji Lake, you know, the lake That's where the, the hotel Doji, that right. sadly burnt down the other day. Yeah, where? Kandorji,
1: this is Indorji. Okay, and where is Indorji Lake?
2: So Indorji Lake is in the in the sort of far north of, of uh, northern Myanmar. It's kind of, it's part of Kachin province, and it's almost due west of Michina, which is the capital of Kachin Province, so it 's sort of going towards the Indian border, about halfway between uh, Michina and the indian border and it 's mm-hmm. to me i found I found it to be like a sort of uh, a mini inlay lake but with absolutely no tourists so there 's one guest house and a handful of very basic rooms you know we 're talking. Zero to one stars built on stilts over the lake. But this lake is beautiful. You know, it's surrounded by mountains and hills. And it's the one where you may have seen images of it. There's a golden temple or pagoda, pyre, built on the water. So you see this. I've seen this image a lot. And I, I always assumed it was Inlay Lake or somewhere else. But actually, right. it's in Dorgy Lake. And it's this stunning, shimmering golden pagoda built over the water in the middle of the lake.
1: Right, and we've actually, uh, for people listening, you can check the show notes. We'll have a Google map with all these places that Nick's talking about marked. So, I mean, how do you get up there, and how long is that area good for to hang out in?
2: Yeah, in Dodgy Lake, it's it's quite interesting. Probably the best way to get there, uh, which what most people are doing, and it was really brilliant. The, the one thing to remember, Scott, that's really important is that they've abolished foreign affairs on trains as uh, as of maybe... A year or two ago. So it's absolutely rock bottom prices to travel on the train. So you can take a, a night train or a you know day train, night train, whatever you prefer, to a place called Hopin, H-O-P-I-N, yeah. and I then you that, jump yeah. off there and you take a cross country, either a motorbike taxi or a you know a pickup truck or some sort of transport from the station. To the lake, which Mm -hmm. so so the train I think is about seven or eight hours, very slow, but you can take like a you know like a business class sleeper for about two dollars, and then you jump on the back of a motorbike or a pickup truck, and they deposit you in the the village on the shores of Indorji Lake, and then you rent a bicycle, and you go cycling Mm -hmm. around the shores of the lake, and as I say, just. The locals are extraordinarily friendly because they get so few tourists. It's also quite a well-known bird spotting area, so you can rent hmm. binoculars and go with a local guide to spot some quite rare water birds.
1: Okay, and you can stay in your zero or one-star lodging.
2: <laughs> yeah, your 0.5-star lodging is available for about $8 a night or something. So it's, it's very basic, but again, for people with a sense of adventure, this is, this is what Southeast Asia is all about.
1: Hmm. And, and how long would you want to stay there?
2: I think I, I stayed – well, I was kind of, you know, as you always are when doing a guidebook, you've got to keep on moving. I think I stayed two nights. But I can imagine if, if people that like trekking and they want to spot birds and do a bit of water activities, they could easily stay three nights. I th- I'd say two nights is the minimum. One night would be a, you know, a bit short to do that whole sort of hike there and, and that whole effort of the train journey and the, and the road journey. I'd say it's definitely worth spending two nights.
1: Right. And now I've heard the train is super dodgy, that it literally jumps – off the tracks and kind of bounces <laughs> yeah. around. Is this true, or is this a kind of an urban legend?
2: No, it is very bumpy in places. Definitely, it's, a, it's it feels like there's more potholes than the roads. Uh, but okay. you know, it's okay. Well, if it depends what sort of sleeper you are. But if you're okay, you know, if you're in the comfier seats, like you definitely should pay for whatever they call it, upper class. I think it is. So you pay yeah. for upper class, and they're like they are like business class seats in an aeroplane. I mean, not not the modern ones, but you know, the old fashioned big wide seats. And it's kind of, you can get lulled, it's like being in a rocking chair or in a crib, you know, you just have to go with the flow.
1: Yeah, and they serve champagne and stuff, of course, right?
2: Uh, Yeah, maybe Mandalay beer, Myanmar beer, and a a few (laughs) unidentifiable insects.
1: (laughs) Right, and you mentioned the capital, just which is kind of northeast of there, and how do I say it, Michina?
2: Michina, yeah, Michina, which is... um, you know, very proud, catchy in city, um, and but again, doesn't get many visitors because there isn't a huge amount there. But it's a very charming place, you know, because of that, perhaps. So it's really used as it's really a hub to explore more of northern Myanmar. So it's a really good place to fly in and out of. There's good connections to Mandalay, good connections to Yangon, and then you mm-hmm. use that as a base to, to fan out further north, east, or west.
1: Now, could you take the train uh, as a tourist uh, up to Hopin and see the lake and then grab the train further up to, up to there?
2: Yes, exactly. So you can still do – you could take a train from Mandalay or even uh, Shwebo places on route as if you're going north. And you can go past the old place that um, was famous with uh, George Orwell, Qatar on the oh, Irawaddy really? River. So, you know, the place that he, when he wrote Burmese days, a lot of it was set in Qatar. So, you can, you, again, the train doesn't go to Qatar as such. You have to go to a place, Naba, a railway junction nearby. But basically, you can use the railway to go through all the key sites of the north. The only problem Ooh. is, Michina, it stops. Like, so you want to go further north to the Himalayas and Putao, which is stunning, no way. You've mm-hmm. got a, there's only one way in and out and that's flying.
1: Right. Now, I've actually, uh, Mitana, I've looked at that and kind of dreamed of it and read about train journeys there. But are foreigners allowed north of there without special permits? I, I remember at a time, I think I read that any foreigners going north of there, yeah, you needed permits or something.
2: Yeah, Putau was a permit place for a long time. Um, right now, it's a, a sort of weird situation. Well, again, because of politics and insurgency and stability. Some of these places have temporarily gone off limits again, sadly. But basically, Putao, when I was there, which was um, about a year ago, mm-hmm. Putao was um, was safe and no permits required. So you could basically fly into Putao town and didn't need a permit, you know, just book a ticket. The only problem was that, of course, Putao Town is not the attraction. The attraction is the mountains and the trekking and the rivers and the whitewater rafting and the cycling. So to go anywhere beyond Putao, you did need a permit. So it's a bit of a catch-22. It's technically no permit, but in fact, to do anything exciting.
1: Okay, yeah, and this is what I've dreamt of Putao and getting up into the Himalayas there, but they're a long way away too, aren't they? Like, you've got to trek for a couple of weeks to really get into the mountains, do you not?
2: Absolutely, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You can do gentle village treks, and you can do activities beyond Putao, but to do proper ascending of peaks and Himalayan peaks, um, not, I mean, trekking and also mountaineering, yeah. I mean, the the, the sort of, the treks you can do to the lower peaks on the Indian border would still require eight to 10 days. And if you want to to conquer Kakabo razi which is the highest peak in Southeast Asia at sort of 5,800 meters plus, this mm-hmm. one's way, way up north, sort of nestled between China and India. This one, you need like three weeks to trek in to the base mm-hmm. camp, about uh, about four days to trek up and down, and then another two to three weeks to get back. If you've got a lot of money, you can helicopter in and out to base camp, but I think that's only for the very, very uh, very elite of the climbing world.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, I'm looking at photos online of uh, Putao, and can you actually see... Big peaks from town, or, or is this photo of somewhere else maybe that I'm looking at?
2: No, definitely on clear days. I mean, I was very lucky. The day I arrived was super clear, and as I left the airport, my driver guide pointed out to me, Kakabo Razi. Now, of course, I'd, I'd never been before, so I took it for granted, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to see it every day. So instead of pulling my camera out and furiously snapping, I thought, oh, I'll take a picture tomorrow. But of course, the next day it was overcast, and I never quite saw that same perfect view on arrival. But yes, on clear days, you can see. It looks like you're like you feel like you're in Nepal or Bhutan or somewhere in the base of the Himalayas. It's stunning. It's a rice it's rice field river valleys. So it's very Southeast Asia at ground level, but then mm-hmm. you're surrounded by this sort of amphitheatre of peaks. It's stunning.
1: Yeah, it kind of looks like the main peak I see in the photo here looks a bit like fishtail when you're uh, in uh, in um, Nepal. Have you been uh, over there and seen fishtail?
2: Yeah, I have. Yeah, exactly. No, it's exact, You really do feel like that. I mean, I I really thought, wow, this feels. I mean, well, it is. It's the Himalayas. I mean, it's not the highest of yeah. the Himalayas, but you you've made it to the Himalayas in Southeast Asia, which is quite amazing.
1: Yeah, that's the thing that always boggles my mind about Myanmar is I think people think rice fields and maybe beaches, but I mean, it arguably has the most diverse territory of any Southeast Asian nation. I mean, it again, it's in the Himalayas, bordering. You know the highest peaks in the world, and then you have the Andaman Coast all the way down close to Phuket, right? So they've really got everything covered.
2: Yeah, exactly. When you look at that, the you know the islands and the, the sort of sea gypsy culture, as they call it, down there, and in the Mergi Archipelago and things. And then, yeah, you're up in the Himalayas, and you're sort of level with with places like Nepal. I mean, it's it's such a huge country and so diverse, and so many ethnicities and groups. Which, of course, to be fair, they are struggling with at the moment because mm-hmm. politic, politically, it makes things complicated. But it is. In terms of a mosaic and a, and a country, it's stunning. I mean, it really has so much to offer. And had it had it remained peaceful and accessible for the last fifty years, I mean, it would probably leave Thailand in the shade. To be fair.
1: Hmm. Now, if you were going to make the trek and spend the money all the way to go up to Phuket, like how long would you have to allocate to make a visit worthwhile? And, and what might you do? Like, are you looking at minimum a week up there to sort of do anything really worthwhile?
2: Yeah, I think that's probably fair. If you want to really get beyond the town and do things, I mean, you you'd preferably want to do like a two day, one night white water rafting trip because again, it's mm-hmm. uh, it's not crazy white water but it's, it's just beautiful. It's the scenery. You actually, the, the rapids are only kind of maybe grade three, grade four, nothing too severe, but you, mm-hmm. that means you can actually look at this stunning mountain country and then you've got a bit of mountain biking and then you've got maybe a shorter trek to, to not necessarily a peak, but, you know, just village treks involving a little bit of altitude. So mm-hmm. if you combine all that together, yeah, I think, I think a week would be, you know, you could possibly get away with five days and if you had a, the indulgence of 10 days, you'd be doing well.
1: Yeah, I've done a fair bit of trekking in Nepal, and I just because it's Myanmar and it's so remote, like are the support services pretty rough and ready if you're going rafting or trekking and stuff, or is it is it pretty good standard?
2: It's it's still quite basic. I mean, what you find is that the the sort of uh, the service level and the, key, the the willingness to help is there. But mm-hmm. yes, in terms of facilities and what they have, it's still quite basic. You know, it's not really geared up to uh, mainstream tourism and, and high-level trekking. But, you know, these, these people are passionate about what they do and they want to share their their landscape and their country with visitors. And so, yeah, I mean, it, again, it's one of those things where you've got to go in with an open mind and say, I'm going to a frontier. I'm going to see something new and different.
1: Hmm. Um, I'm going to ask you a question that probably you should just say buy the book, and it says in the book. But if someone has you know two three weeks to cover that northern area, like what's the route you recommend?
2: Well, I mean, for me, the other highlight we haven't really mentioned is Mogok. Mogok is okay. uh, is Ruby Land. <laughs> it's the, well, oh, it's right. the world's largest producer of rubies. So wow. basically, nice. it's a it's mining country. It's like the wild east. You know, it's these open pit mines deep. Shaft mines and markets everywhere, like uncut stones, cut stones, but really fascinating. You don't have to be into jewellery and wanting to be buying stones to appreciate it because the landscape's stunning and the whole ethos of the town and the way it's set up around this industry makes it quite fascinating.
1: Mm-hmm. So you would go there and spend a couple of days and wander the markets and so forth?
2: Yeah, I mean, I could give you my itinerary (laughs) in the basic way I did it. It's probably a pretty fun way to do it. I mean, I went up from Mandalay through Shwebo to Mogok, went around the the mines for a couple of days and saw some of the sites. And it's beautiful country there in Shan State. And then mm-hmm. I doubled back down. There's a loop road that brings you down to Pin Ulin, the hill station we talked about earlier, with a very British yep. style, like big gardens, big houses, and a uh, yep. very, very pleasant climate. And then I carried on via via the Gottek Viaduct up to uh, Sipo and mm-hmm. then to Lashio. Then you okay. kind of get a bit stuck because of access and areas and safety. So I ended up backtracking um, from okay. Lashio by flight to Mandalay. And then I, flew okay. up, then I flew up to Michina and then up to Putao. Mm-hmm. Did my days mm. up there. You've got to go back down to Michina because you can only fly in and out of Putau. And then I did right. the train down to Hopin, over to Indorji Lake, and down right. to Qatar, George Orwell country, and back down. So yes. it's a big trip. I mean, I think like, it was about three weeks in total. But it, you know, it's so rewarding because you really are in very uncharted territory.
1: Wow, man. You make me want to quit my job. And I assume those flights <laughs> aren't cheap either, yeah?
2: Yeah, it's got better to be honest. There's a lot more domestic airlines than there used to be. And so for example, even Putao, if you probably remember whenever you looked at it and there were permits required, it was like maybe air began one flight every two days. Now mm-hmm. there's about three flights a day with different airlines, so oh, really? it, all the prices have come down. But it's still about timing and when you buy your ticket and which airline you. Now, use. Now
1: this is a, a silly question. I sound like some guy that's never travelled, but I mean, <laughs> when you're in these remote places, is are you getting food poisoning at all, or is it pretty safe for for the Western stomach and so forth? Or
2: yeah, no, that's a very fair question for most travellers. I mean, I I, I find Burmese food to be pretty fine. I mean. Um, When you go into those more remote areas, obviously, you get a choice of more simple Burmese food, sometimes Mm. a bit of Chinese. There's always a Chinese restaurant in, well, most towns in Southeast Asia. And, of course, you get a bit of Indian or Nepalese, because, well, especially Mm. once you get towards the Himalayas. Um, So I I didn't find any problems myself, but I think, yeah, you you probably got to be a bit careful with street food, but, you know, restaurant food, you're you're probably okay. okay.
1: Right, right. Okay, I have to ask you about the the new capital, Nipita Like you you mentioned, you covered that for I think uh, one of the earlier editions. Yeah. Yep. What is that place like? Like I've heard, you could almost land a plane on the main roads because there's no road.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's very surreal. I mean, I, I imagine I've never been to Pyongyang, but a lot of people refer to it as sort of Pyongyang in the jungle. Mm-hmm. So you've got these huge, yeah, eight lane highways, uh, but you know they're not flat. They're kind of winding their way, way around mountain peaks. And, you know, really, and it's so spread out. What, what's really difficult is it's not a place, there's no soul or center. You you know, mm-hmm. it's all, it's all zones. You've got a hotel zone for foreigners, an embassy zone, a ministry zone, a museum zone, and they're really spread out. We're talking like kilometers between them. So it's, it's really hard to get around. Unless you've got your own transport, you're basically mm-hmm. stuck.
1: So is it such Bizarroville that it's almost worth a couple days just to kind of see and experience it for an average traveler?
2: Yeah, I think for people that that like their capitals, or we should say their weird capitals, you know, unconventional capitals, it could be interesting. You know, I mean, I spent, yeah, I think two nights there and two days. um, you know, it's not a place I'd rush to go back to, to be honest. But to see okay. once and, and to know you've been there, it, it is quite interesting, and it is very different. Um, you know, you find the embassy is a good example. Many of them didn't move to Napidor, they refused because they were comfortable in Yangon. So you you yeah. know, you'd have ambassadors flying up for long meetings for one day and having to sort of have their embassy car dro- hammer up the road to Napidor. But you know, it, it's it's a bit surreal, and the facilities are very
1: limited. Okay. Well, you've covered a lot of the country. Where have you not? not been in that country that you'd really like to visit
2: yeah that's i mean that's a brilliant question because there is so much to offer i mean for me i think you mentioned the south and the islands and um, that would mm-hmm. be stunning because i think you know down there you've got you look over the border in thailand that you know your phukets your kopi peas your krabbies and so on the whole coast is very developed in general myanmar there's 700 islands there and there's what a handful of resorts maybe five and, most so far. Yeah, yeah. So I think that in terms of diving, snorkelling, sort of frontier exploring, I know some people that run liverboards down there and I've been invited on a couple of press trips but haven't made it yet, unfortunately. Yeah. But um, that, that would be fascinating. Um, the other area is the west. I haven't yet been to um, U, which is like the sort of alternative Began um, right out yeah. there in the west. Um, right now it's again probably off limits because of everything that's happening in Rakhine State but I've heard from people that have been there it's stunning and again it's Began without the tourists.
1: Hmm. Okay um, I hate people asking me where's your favorite spot but without saying favorite what are a couple of your most memorable locations in the country?
2: Yeah my favorite, my couple of yeah certainly most memorable I mean I've, I've always got a soft spot for Yangon I love the Historic architecture there, you know, the legacy of the British architecture and the fact that so much of it is still in in situ is amazing. And obviously, going somewhere like the Shwedagon Pagoda and the fact that it's it is still a little bit sort of quirky and different, and it's not that excessively developed yet. I think Bagan, you know, if you're a temple fan, it's hard to look beyond those stunning temples. I mean, they give Angkor a run for their money. Personally, I'm biased. I live in Cambodia. (laughs) Angkor has taken my heart, but Bagan is a close second. And then, as I say, yeah, but from the north, I mean, from my experience of the north, I think it would be Putao. I mean, just the landscape, the scenery, the Himalayas, the mountains and the, this sort of mosaic of ethnic minorities from Tibet, China, India and so on. It's just a really beautiful and fascinating
1: area. Oh man, I get so excited about Myanmar. I put off going there for years because I kept wanting to wait till I had three weeks and that never happened. So now I've been kind of doing it in little bite-sized chunks. But you've gotten <laughs> me seriously excited. Um, Is there anything that people should keep in mind before planning a trip there? Let's imagine people have maybe been to Thailand or Vietnam. Is there anything they should kind of just remember and consider before heading there?
2: Yeah, I think there's a couple of things that jump to mind. One would be conservatism. You know, it's it's a very... A conservative country, very traditional. So, you know, you, okay. we've had this issue in Cambodia for many years as well, or Laos. You know, you're crossing, you, you come from the Thai beaches or Bangkok, you know, anything yeah, yeah. Go, not anything goes, that's unfair, but you know what I mean, for tourists at least, they have that impression that it's very free. And you cross, the, you cross the border into Myanmar, like we said, you're going back in time. So, you know, you have to be very careful about how you dress. You know, you can't, if you're a guy, you can't wander around in a singlet or, you know, sort of uh, sort of speedo trunks. And if you're a lady, you can't wear a crop top and so on. You've got to be really aware that you're in a very conservative country. And the other mm. thing you've got to be very aware of is the, is the politics right now. You know, we unfortunately, we can't skirt around that. Things are very messy there in many areas. What's making the news is what's happening in Rakhine State with the Rohingya and the awful refugee crisis and, and uh, you know what's happening on the western borders with Bangladesh but that's not the only thing happening there's also a lot of insurgent movements all around the country so the Shan State Army are active as we said around SIPOR and Shan State, the Kachin yeah, yeah. Independence Army, KIA, they're active in the north so at the moment there's been a bit of a flare up, um, obviously Suu Kyi's mission was to sort of uh, sow peace and, and carry on her father's legacy but for whatever reason right now that isn't quite happening and that's not me getting into politics it's just stating the obvious so at the moment for for various reasons um, which we don't need to delve into right here there are there's a lot of instability so tourists have to be very careful when they're planning their trip that where they can go and where they can't go and it does change quite regularly so where you can go today maybe in six months you can't go and vice versa
1: right right okay gotcha those are all really good tips well just before we wrap up nick uh on not related to Myanmar at all, but I know your wife uh, Kulikar directed a movie. What back in. 2014, The Last Reel, which won a good deal of awards. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I understand it's going to be video on demand really soon.
2: Yeah, that's right. So The Last Reel was a, a homegrown Cambodian film um, about a sort of rebellious teenager who, who ends up running away from home and discovers this lost movie that her mother was involved in in an abandoned cinema. Anyway, I won't spoil the plot, but um, it's, it, it did very well. It did a lot of festivals around the world. It, it, its debut festival was Tokyo International Film Festival, where it won the Spirit of Asia Award. It showed at uh, Michael Moore's Film Festival, um, oh, really? Traverse City, and he gave it the Grand Founders Prize. So he's he's quite a useful backer <laughs> to have. Um, so yeah, it's done really well. Uh, and but it's been a slow burner because we're you know we we do many different things, not just film. So we've got to juggle how to release it, and we've never really released a film before. We've helped other people make films, but distribution and platforms and the the changing, shifting world of technology makes things very complicated, so we've been quite cautious. But yes, we've finally thrown caution to the wind, and it's available now on Vimeo On Demand, and it will then be soon available on Google Play, iTunes, and so on. So yes, it can be seen finally.
1: Very cool. I'm looking forward to it. Well, Nick, you've always been super generous with your time Uh, from the very first time. I think I called you up in Phnom Penh probably 10 years ago and uh, bumped into you quickly at the FCC few weeks ago and and thanks so much for sharing uh, stories of northern Minmao with us
2: scott it's always a pleasure and uh, yes i hope you get to putao in the not too distant future
1: it will happen one of these days thanks nick wow i tell you what i get excited every time i talk to nick i've been lucky enough to meet him in person for food and beers a few times and now this is our second podcast with him he's just such a friendly nice knowledgeable guy
0: yeah, I'm sorry I had to miss most of that, but I just had to listen to what you guys were talking about. And, uh, you know, he's got a real uh, energy for, for going out there and getting off the beaten path and really exploring. And, uh, you know, it sounds really cool, like some of the places that he describes, the trains, I think, sound really fun. to. to and uh, it really does sound like there's areas where you can get away from any other kind of tourists and, and have kind of this this adventurous, unspoiled kind of, new experience
1: yeah i mean i've been really jazzed on kind of the northeast segment from mandalay that he talked about and i'm going to butcher all these names but quinn Lwin, and then you head northwest from there and you end up getting up around uh, Lazio and Hispa and all those areas in the shan state northeast of mandalay and then you get to take the train over the big viaduct like, I think there's a reasonable number of travelers that go up there, but that to me is like, it's been on my radar for a long time.
0: Yeah, and then uh, talking about the islands and uh, the fact that you might be, you're going there in, in a couple of weeks, yeah?
1: Yeah, just uh, a couple of weeks, but we'll be on the beach for the most part. But I've talked to a few people that have done uh, liveaboard dive vacations down there in in the Andaman Sea, and... Yeah, I mean, it's got to be incredible because Phuket and the Thai coast is outstanding. So, I mean, there's so many islands in the southwest there along Burma that when the time comes that they're developed, you can do dive uh, and dive trips and some cruises, but it's got to be unbelievable down there.
0: And even like Napitao, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it, the capital, the new capital of, of Myanmar, um, just is this really Nepal, quirky, yeah, really quirky yeah. kind of... Crazy experience. Uh, Myanmar just has so many interesting places it seems like to go and I can't believe I haven't been for so long but it seems like you could go for a week or two and then you know six months later go back and, and it would take you years to kind of explore all the interesting places that you could go see and experience.
1: Well that's kind of why I didn't go for a long time. I was always waiting till I had two or three weeks and I never did and then finally I started going on short trips but it is daunting. Like it is a massive country. I don't think people realize how big it is. I mean, it borders, you know, Bangladesh and India and then it's, you know, right up there bordering Tibet or China or however you want to, um, whatever your beliefs are. But it is it is massive. So, I mean, where would you really like to go in the country, Trevor? Pick, say, a couple spots.
0: I don't know. You know, again, like I'd love to see the coast. I'm sure there's just spectacular beaches and islands, but at the same time, I think uh some of those northern areas like up near the like the the Himalayas just have got to be just spectacular, you know. And and again, just because the culture is so unique. I'm um, just getting anywhere that's a little bit off the beaten path where you know, you, you feel like you're in another world, and it sounds like there's a lot of those in Myanmar, so I don't know that I could pick just any.
1: Yeah, I think if I had a couple of weeks, I'd like to do the far northern route that Nick mentions. I wrote a Thoreau book years ago, and he kind of talked about being on the train up to, I think it's called Mitkiana in quite far northern parts of the country. That's as far as foreigners can travel by road or rail. But on the way up, you know, he mentioned Kata, where Orwell wrote uh, Burmese days from, and then he talked about this little town um, on the lake up there where there's a temple that you can go to, and then fly from Mitinaka up to Putao in the far north. And Putao is still a long way from the actual big mountains, but you know, do a little trekking up there and that. So that kind of, if I had a couple of weeks to just jump on a train in Mandalay and start heading north, I, I think, man, you would get so far away from tourists on, on that little uh, trail. That would be fascinating. I just, I don't really have much mental picture for what it would be like up there.
0: No, I know. It's, uh, that's what I'm saying. It's like another world. It's this kind of generally unexperienced place for, for tourism. So, uh, you know, maybe we should try to, to head over there sometime and, and then do some follow-up episodes.
1: Yeah, I mean, I did buy uh, the latest edition of The Lonely Planet. I got so jazzed after the conversation with Nick. So, I mean, we will get him on again at some point. Remember in the show notes, you can uh, there's a link to episode 30 that Nick was on talking about up-and-coming spots in Cambodia. Got a link to a really good Google map here. With all the places. And Nick shared some really great photos, so you can check those out uh, in the show notes and also on Facebook. So, yeah, I, I'm dreaming of the country. I think you could spend a lifetime exploring, but lots of uh, fresh, exciting spots to travel.
0: Yep, I think it sounds uh, pretty good. So, I hope everybody enjoyed that episode uh, and the fact that we're giving Myanmar some love on uh, Talk Travel Asia.
1: Yeah, we're filling in the blanks. All right, everyone, thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Until then, happy trails. Thanks for joining us on Talk Travel Asia. We look forward to sharing with you again soon.
0: Hey Scott, do you remember the time we walked on top of the wall at GameCore Tom